people at war, when the embattled soldiers are at the front lines, they've been in the trenches for days, enemy fire all around, fighting, fighting, fighting. The enemy is getting closer and closer and closer, and it is becoming more and more apparent that those soldiers down in the trenches are being surrounded and are about to be killed by their enemies. Their last hope is to get some kind of message back to headquarters, some kind of message up the chain that they could possibly, just in time, send air support. And isn't that one of the greatest moments in multiple movie scenes? There are the soldiers at the front lines, and in the distance, coming over the horizon, they hear the rumbling of the plane engines coming to fly over their troops and save them from their enemies. Some wonderful help from the sky. Revelation chapter 8, verse 6 through chapter 11, 19 is like that. Only in the end, there's no air support. It doesn't come in time to save them from their enemy. Instead, they die. This is essentially the progress of Revelation 8, 6 through eleven nineteen. Is this the end? Is this the totality? Chapter 8, verse 6 through eleven nineteen is the longest unit, the longest cycle of sevens in Revelation. I think, at least, personally, it's the most difficult to interpret in Revelation. This is known as the seven trumpets, which are sounded by seven angels. Those last three trumpets, also referred to as seven woes, seven griefs, you could say. Essentially, this is God's people versus the raging nations and what God's people are going to face in the end. Let's pray. Father, we can only put ourselves before you and ask that you would give us help and clarity about this passage. We want to have the certainty that your word gives us. We want to be humble as we interpret what it says, leaving you alone as the final authority, Christ and the Spirit as the final authority as to the meaning, the application of these words. Would you help us all have humility and submit ourselves to your word that we might walk away encouraged to continue in faith, to continue in boldness. Father, might, might you use your word today to awaken us, call us to repentance for having soft hearts about being witnesses for Jesus Christ. where we are prone to cower, where we are prone to be quiet, would you use today's word to make us bold witnesses? We ask this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me introduce you to the main characters 
in chapter 8, 6 through 11, 19. One of the main characters is the locusts. Like horses prepared for battle, they fly out of the bottomless pit. They serve the king of the bottomless pit whose name is Abaddon, or in Greek, Apollyon. Then there is the 200 million troop army that the angels from the four corners release. And that 200 million, really meaning innumerable numbered army, is given permission to kill one-third of the earth, one-third of mankind by plagues. The nations as a whole, the nations, all peoples, tribes, languages, and tongues are a prominent role. And then when we get to chapter 11, the main focus of this section, the two witnesses. Everything beginning in chapter 8, verse 6, progresses toward the culmination of events in and around those two witnesses. Let's begin in chapter 8, verse 6. You'll notice today there are going to be several things that I will summarize for the sake of time. I do not intend to answer all questions about all of these passages. If we were going seven sermons on the seven trumpets, I still would not be attempting to answer all of the questions about what all of the things mean. We're going to be preaching all of them together because I think they form a unit they're meant to be read together and held together. They begin in chapter 8, verse 6. They end in eleven nineteen. So we're going to preach them together this morning. We begin to see in chapter 8, verse 6, these trumpets are sounded and God's wrath begins to be poured out on the earth. The first trumpet brings in hail and fire from heaven. I'm going to go ahead and tell you this is not unlike the seventh plague on Egypt. The second trumpet is sounded and water is turned to blood, not unlike the first plague in Egypt. The third trumpet is sounded and water all over the earth is made bitter. It tastes like wormwood. This is probably an allusion or a reference to Jeremiah, a message of judgment there. The fourth trumpet, darkness comes over all the earth like the ninth plague in Egypt. What's the point here? John is seeing and communicating the beginning of the wrath of God poured out, poured out in familiar terms to the Bible. These were means by which God displayed himself and his power in the Old Testament. Only now it's not just about Egypt. Now this is about not just a nation that enslaved God's people. Now this is about the nations. This is about the whole earth. This is not just about Israel's ancient foe, Pharaoh, and Egypt, all the nations. What does all of these things mean in these first four trumpets? In this time, God is in a relationship with the whole earth like he was in a relationship with Pharaoh and Egypt. The end time, the last day's setting is in nature like God's relationship to Egypt and Pharaoh especially concerning the locusts and the promising, the prominent role they are about to play. Look in chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. We're introduced to Abaddon and his army. Abaddon comes out with this army of locusts. They are permitted to torment the earth, not to kill, but to torment. That torment is limited to five months, but look in chapter 9, verse 6. 
In those days, when these locusts come from the bottomless pit and torment those on the earth, in those days people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. This is to be their lot in life. Due to sin and rebellion against God, like in Egypt, locusts will come. These, I believe, demonic locusts will be released all over the earth like locusts were released and swarmed over Egypt. This is going to be the experience of mankind. Demons from the bottomless pit unleashed to torment. Chapter 9, verse 13, God releases his wrath on idol worshipers, but they do not Repent. Pick up in chapter 9, verse 14. The sixth trumpet, he who had the trumpet said, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the day, the hour, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. By these three plagues, go down to verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. The rest of mankind, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This hundreds of million person army, innumerable really, they're actually given the power to kill. This is an escalation from the first trumpets. God is not merely, however, destroying the earth. God is giving the earth, the, these on the earth, the chance to repent. The whole point of this is not unlike why God sent the plagues onto Pharaoh. Over and over, Moses said, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And everything in Egypt could have been avoided if Pharaoh would have repented, acknowledged God as God, and let his people go. It could have ended a different way. And so it is when God pours out his wrath like this on mankind and a third of the earth is killed. Well, those who are not killed by these plagues, they don't repent like Pharaoh. They don't repent of worshiping demons and idols. They don't repent of loving money. They don't repent of sexual morality or stealing. They don't repent of murderous hearts or sorcery. And Christians just know there's going to be a number of people on the earth who no matter how violently God allows idolaters to be judged on the earth, no matter how harsh His wrath pours out, even killing some, there will be many who will not turn away from worshiping demons and money. And they will... They won't quit their lives of murder or sexual morality. They won't stop. Chapter 10, verse 5, pick up there. John next hears seven thunders rolling through heaven. These seem to be prophetic thunders. They seem to be speaking about things to come. However, John is not allowed to write these things down. We don't have them before us. Chapter 10, verse 5, And the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. He swore by God that there would be no more delay. So you can't write down what's in the seven thunders, but I'm swearing by God himself there will be no delay. 
But that in the last days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This is getting us in history to the end of the pouring out of the wrath of God, to the end of what all the prophets in the Old Testament had announced. Daniel, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others. The time is coming when God will wrap up all of the prophetic witness through the Old Testament prophets about the end times. The point here is that God spoke through the prophets what would finally be achieved. And these things are going to happen through these thunderous prophecies that John heard but could not write down. Next, John is told to write, to take the, the little scroll, continuing in chapter 10. Supposedly, I think this best represents God's plans for this little period of time. The last days of the last days, you might say. Chapter 10, verse 10, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten my stomach, it was made bitter. That means there's justice on the tongue, but God's wrath is bitter in our souls. I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. I have more to say to you about nations and peoples, languages and kings. So just to summarize really quickly as we're walking through these passages, Abaddon unlocks the bottomless pit. He's given the key to the bottomless pit. He unlocks that demonic locust or scouring the earth, tormenting. The four angels has released this hundreds of million troop army onto the earth, killing a third of the earth. But now this other group is added to the narrative, this prophecy which he's about to hear more about, the peoples, the nations, the languages, and the tongues, the kings. John is about to hear something. John's about to tell us something about the nations. Watch for the nations and everything we're about to see and hear. Next then in chapter 11... We're introduced to the two witnesses, the culmination of the movement of the seven trumpets, I believe. This is in the cycle of Revelation, what we see called an interlude. We've seen this pattern forming through Revelation. Six judgments, beginning with the seals, an interlude message for the saints, And then finally, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, or we'll see later the seventh bowl, the seventh part. And here in chapter 11, we are within this interlude between the sixth trumpet of history and the seventh trumpet of history. And it's going to introduce to us two witnesses. Look where it begins, chapter 11, verse 1. This is extremely easy to skip over as you're reading through Revelation and immediately try to discern who are these two witnesses. But these couple verses, chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, are really key. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. The temple, the altar, And those who worship is who John has in sight. I think it's extremely telling and defining in who these two witnesses are. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. 
For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This introduction to the two witnesses begins with the picture of the temple. The temple is the basis for the the movement, for the progression of everything that happens in Revelation chapter 11. So without keeping that in mind, we're going to miss really the whole point of the two witnesses. Notice the nations are are given a realm in the outer courts. The the nations have a place in God's temple. They're, They're allowed, they're measured off from the holy of holies, from the altar and those worshiping there. And they're allowed a place in the outer court of the temple. That's important. John was just told he's going to prophesy about nations again and about kings again. And then he sees outside the temple the nations outside of the temple in the courts. And next he begins to introduce us, chapter 3, to the witnesses themselves. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That time period, 1,260 days, is placing John's vision in the book of Daniel's context, which came in the 580s BC, when Daniel began, probably more clearly than other prophets, to see the rolling out of God's last day's plan. Probably one of the most hotly debated ideas in all the book of Revelation and all of the Bible is how long is the 1,260 days? Is it the entire history of the resurrection of Christ till his return? Is it actual 1,260 days? Is it representative of a different time? Or all kinds of ideas about that. But what this passage is most certainly doing is tapping what John is seeing in this revelation into Daniel's vision so that what John is seeing here is dovetailing in, is fulfilling, as John just said in, this, in these chapters, fulfill the mysteries of the Old Testaments, the Old Testament prophets, that they're going to be coming true in this way, in this last time. Well, who are these witnesses that are going to be a part of bringing these things about? What do they mean? Well, John tries to tell us who they are and what they mean in chapter 11, verse 4. These two witnesses, he says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Who are the two witnesses? Well, they're the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I don't know about you, but I don't immediately find this helpful in defining who the two witnesses are. It's like, you know, going to the detective or, you know, going up to the police station and say, I need to find somebody. Can you do a drawing for me? And this is what they look like. This is about them. And they, you know, they do their little pencil, get their little sketch, and they turn it around. And it's like, it's two lampstands. It's like, well, that, that does not help me find the people I'm trying to find. It, do, it doesn't make it clearer. So what is... John seeing. What does it mean for him to call two witnesses the two lampstands? Think about it. Think about the temple. This is a picture of the temple. The nations are in the outer court. The lampstands are before the Lord of the earth. 
Well, who are the witnesses of God to the earth in the Bible? I think it's the people of God. The church in the last days. The church is witnessing to the nations. Why mention two of them? Why are there two witnesses? People have all kinds of ideas about who these people are. I think it's two because the law requires two witnesses for a thing to be true. It's heaven's ways of saying the church is a sufficient twofold witness to the prophetic judgment that I am pouring out on the earth right now. A perpetual, sufficient witness to the earth so that no nation, no people in history can say God left us without a witness about the things that he prophesied. That said, the passage is much less focused, really, it's much less focused on who these two witnesses are than it is what role they play in God's plans. The passage never says it's the church. That never says it's Elijah and Moses, which makes sense as he reads some of the things here. Rather, they have familiar powers, these two witnesses. They have familiar powers which accompany their witness. Look in chapter 11, keep reading in verse 5. These two witnesses, God's witnesses, are accompanied by great ancient power. They're given permission to prophesy on the earth. Verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no, may, no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. It seems what is happening in this passage is that the end-time testimony of God, the Word of God, is being portrayed as having the power of God's Old Testament manifestation of power. This was the function of the Old Testament power to accompany the Word of God through the prophets. The fire would harm them. If you wanted to kill God's two witnesses, fire is going to harm them. Many people would say this is reflective. This recalls Elijah's calling down fire on the armies of King Ahaziah, who is devoted to Baal. And King Ahaziah would send his captain with his 50 men three times in a row. Elijah would call down fire from heaven to devour them. They have the power to shut the sky and stop the rain. This would remind us of Elijah when he was competing with Ahab and Baal about who was the true God. They have the the power to turn waters into blood and every plague of every kind. This reminds us of Moses versus Pharaoh. These two end times witnesses are accompanied with God's ancient power. The whole saga of the witnesses is suggesting to the listener that the witness of God's Word cannot be stopped. It's accompanied by God's power. Remember, this authority is given to them for 1,260 days. There is authority to prophesy, and it will be accompanied with power so that it cannot be stopped. That's God's witness. What's the next marker in time? The testimony itself. When the testimony, when the witness is finished. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. When they, when those two witnesses have finished their testimony, 
That's the next marker in time when they have finished their testimony. Whether the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses or John the Baptist and Zechariah or two unknown future Christian prophets or the church as a whole, the grander message to saints today is the same. No power on earth, no force, no prison, no crucifixion. Nothing, nothing, nothing can stop the testimony of Jesus Christ. The witness of Jesus Christ on the earth cannot be stopped. It can only be finished. It cannot be stopped. It will only finish when God has Finish the time for their authority to be his witnesses. The book of Acts works like this. The church, the witness, in chapter 1, verse 8. God, is this the time yet? Is this the time where you're going to consummate your kingdom? No, it's not the time. You don't need to know the seasons or the hour. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The same word for these two witnesses, Martis. Martyr, chapter, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll be my martyrs, my witnesses. Same word for these two witnesses in Revelation 11. You'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what is the book of Acts about? Is it about tongues? Is it about some miracles when people touch Paul's handkerchief? Is it about getting out of prison? No. It's about how unstoppable the Word of God is when it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Caesar can't stop the Word when he kills James. You can't stop the Word when you put Paul in prison. The guards just get saved. Angels come and get Paul out. You can't stop the Word from getting to Rome. You think you're actually going to arrest Paul. Paul's arrest is actually how Paul gets to Rome, which is God's goal all along. If you walk through the book of Acts, you'll see the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to Rome, the roads to the end of the earth. The witness to the world of Jesus Christ and of God's word cannot be stopped. It can only be finished. And church, how long are the witnesses of God to witness the word of God until it is finished? They just keep witnessing. They just keep telling. They just keep giving witness to Jesus Christ. Keep telling people about Jesus crucified and the wrath to come to those who refuse to kiss the king, to kiss the son. And we will continue doing this. The witnesses will continue to witness until the witness is finished. Every day, in my view, draws closer to the end of the days of an authorized witness on the earth. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And what? Then the end will come. Well, once the job is done, once the witness is finished, it takes a strange turn of events. Chapter 11, verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, 
They finished their authorized witness on God's behalf, testimony to the earth, to the nations. When they finished their testimony, the beast, that beast from the bottomless pit who had the key and let loose the demonic locusts, the beast rises up from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is the moment that we begin with this morning. The troops on the ground with the army of locusts coming to torment, the army of 200,000 coming to take life, 200 million. Now, even though the locusts are not allowed to harm Christians and the army not allowed to harm those who have the seal, now in this last moment, the beast rises up himself and kills the witnesses. Once they've finished their testimony, it's not air support that comes next. It's the beast himself that rises up from the bottomless pit and kills the two witnesses. Well, where is God? Where's God for his witnesses? What's God doing at this point when he authorizes these witnesses? We've got the temple picture. The nations are in the outer court. And we've got the lampstands witnessing. They do their witnessing. They finish the witness. And right when they're done, the beast rises up and kills them? Three things. One, we're going to see the witnesses will die where Christ died. The witnesses will die exactly where Christ died. Chapter 11, verse 8, look what it says. The beast will rise up and kill the witnesses, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Egypt and Sodom being names for the world which enslaves and are morally outraged by God's people. But here's the point. Here, here's the point about the two witnesses. If they die there in Egypt and Sodom, then they die where Jesus died. Now, of course, Jesus died on the cross in Jerusalem by the hand of the Romans, not in Egypt, not in Sodom. But the point is that Jesus went down into enemy territory, and when he died on the cross for sinners, he died down in Egypt and Sodom. The earth, as it were, is to heaven as was Egypt and Sodom. Jesus didn't go die a ceremonially beautiful death on some majestic hill in the mountains where he was. No, he went to Egypt and died. He went into Sodom and died on the cross. These places where God poured out his fullest, harshest wrath against Pharaoh and against Sodom. That's where Jesus went to die. It's symbolic of Jesus' crucifixion and how he entered down into earth from heaven for sinners in the wickedness of mankind on the earth. And the encouragement about the two witnesses is these two witnesses are killed by the beast. But hey, guess what? That's where Jesus died. Two witnesses died where their Lord was crucified. 
The whole of the seven trumpets is one unit, one narrative. The mountains are going to melt like fire and fall into the sea. The rivers will turn to blood. The sky will darken. The locusts are going to come up out of the bottomless pit. The innumerable troop army is going to come kill a third of the earth. And finally, the beast himself is going to come kill God's two witnesses. What does it all mean? They're going to die the same place Jesus died. That's what the reader is supposed to take heart and hear. They're going to crucify us. They're going to kill us. The beast is going to take our lives, but take courage. That's where the Lord died. That's where Jesus died. You may have seen the movie, Remember the Titans. In the movie, Denzel Washington plays the part of Herman Boone, who was tasked to integrate T.C. Williams High School in Virginia in 1971, a film loosely based on a true story. The coach of the football team, Coach Boone, immediately ran into racial discord, both on his team, which broke out into the entire school and the community. And you might remember what Coach Boone did, at least in the movie, in order to bring his team together. He did what any good leader would do. He wrote them up, woke them up at four or five something in the morning, and took them on a little run through the woods. He ran until his team was vomiting, They came to a clearing in the fog in the woods of Virginia. Came to a clearing where the fog just revealed the tops of a few gravestones peeking out. And while he himself and the team, still catching their breath, Coach Boone began to speak. He says, does anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're still fighting against ourselves today. This green field right here was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family, he quotes. You listen, you listen and take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. Now, I listened to that speech, and you watch this movie, one of the greats. Why not just give that speech back at the football field? Why not just have your players sit in the stands and give the same speech? Why not just stop them at lunch and get everyone's attention in the lunchroom and give the same speech? There's something about knowing that you're standing on the ground where other men have died. It haunts you. It sobers you. It might encourage you. This is the message to the witnesses being killed for their witness. Do you know where this place is? You in Egypt? Are you in Sodom? The beast and his locust breathing down your necks? This is where your Lord was killed. This is where your Lord was crucified. And the witnesses are just to keep witnessing until the witness itself is finished. God's witnesses don't stop witnessing until the witnessing is finished. They're authorized for 1,260 days and then they die. That's what happens in Revelation chapter 11. They witness the full witness and the beast comes to kill them. 
Born into Australian nobility in Germany in 1700, Nicholas Ludwig was expected to follow his father's footsteps into government. Instead, he was more interested in theology and religious work. While visiting Copenhagen in 1731, he met a converted slave from the West Indies. He was looking for someone to go back to his homeland to preach the gospel to slaves. Nicholas Ludwig found two volunteers from the Moravian community living in his estate, thus becoming the first Moravian missionaries and the first Protestant missionaries of the modern era. Within two decades, Nicholas Ludwig sent missionaries around the globe, including into North America to the Indians. That was his life, sending missionaries. That was his mission, keep the testimony going and going and going. And so it's Nicholas Ludwig who we know is quoted summarizing the purpose of Christian missions in this way. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the place of the witnesses. Preach the gospel for your time, die, be killed by the beast in this case, and well, we'll see in a moment if they're forgotten or not. What happens? I think what happens next is basically described as the nation's rage. The nation's rage. That's the second thing. The first thing is that the witnesses will die when their witness for Christ is finished. And the nation's rage. Look in chapter 11, verse 9. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The death of the two witnesses of the gospel of Jesus who was crucified for sinners, that message is the message to uh, salvation to the world. But the world will rejoice when it's snuffed out. This is going to become the, the new Christmas. This is going to be International Death to the Witnesses Day. It's going to be an international holiday. Take the day off work. Let's drink and be merry. Do a gift exchange. Finally, the earth is free of those pesky witnesses. They rejoice. They love it. They're happy. They're sharing presents. 1 John 3, 13 says it like this. Friends, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Just like Cain, who it says in 1 John 3, was of the evil one, murdered his brother because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. They're going to turn the death of the witnesses of God to an international holiday. Let me ask you, friends, are you uncomfortable because someone made you feel awkward about being a Christian? The culmination of how the nations will feel about the, witness, the death of the witnesses of God is they would like to make a national holiday out of your death. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Hates you. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, out of that outer court of nations, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
Let's quit acting like the world's a safe place or that the Bible predicts the world's going to be a really great, happy, safe place for Christians. The world has never been a safe place for Christians. America may have wooed us for a bit, but we've never been favored by the world. The nations rage against the witness. They await their deaths. The beast comes out. He kills the witnesses once the testimony is finished. The witnesses lay there on the ground. They won't even bury them. And the whole world bakes pies together and sings and celebrates. And then what? Where's the air support? Where's God? I want you to skip with me first down chapter 10, verse 5. The seventh and final trumpet is where we're going to get to in a moment. Chapter 10, verse 5, is that prediction of the seventh trumpet being blown. Chapter 10, verse 5 says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore to him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call the sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So remember, those thunderous prophecies were kept from John, told not to write them down. But the angel gives this announcement. You can't know everything, John, but you can know the proceedings of heaven and earth are going to come to this. I promise you this. When that seventh trumpet sounds, it's going to be over. It's going to wrap up all the loose ends of all the prophets are going to be tied together, woven up and completed in that seventh trumpet. Look at the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 to 19. Look there, the next chapter toward the end, chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the reward, the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now watch this in verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. I want you to focus with me on verse 18 there for a minute. What the elders sang. The nations raged, but your wrath Came. There's a play on words there that you don't see in English. Raged and wrath have the same root word, and they sound similar when pronounced in Greek. So the verse, the nations raged, or iezo, but your wrath, or eo, came. It's as if to say the nations threw a fit, that use of the word, the nations threw a fit on the ground in the middle of the grocery store. They threw a fit and they celebrated over the death of the witnesses, but then God's wrath came. It's a mock on the raging of the nations to say that God's wrath actually came. 
The witnesses of God will die in the battlefield before heaven's heavy artillery comes. The nations will rage though and the wrath of God will come. And what does this mean? Look at chapter 11, verse 18. The time is this. This is the time when the seventh angel blows his trumpet. The dead are going to be judged. I think it's looking forward to the end of Revelation. This is looking forward to the end of the end. The time for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and the saints. Again, I think the encapsulation of these witnesses and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God's going to settle all of the loose ends going to settle all the scales. Then comes the time for reckoning when the seventh trumpet is blown. I want you to look with me at the importance of chapter 11, verse 19. The Ark of the Covenant is seen in the temple. This is, this is the highlight here. This is that weird thing to mention all of a sudden, I think, in our minds. You know, we've got this wrath, we've got this army, and people are dying and being coming back from the dead, and all these things are happening. And then you just have this vision where you just see the Ark of the Covenant? You just kind of see it? What does that mean, John? Listen, the people of Israel knew the Ark of the Covenant was the seat of power in Israel. They knew that God's presence and his power were in the ark. That golden box inside the Holy of Holies in the temple, that golden box that had the two cherubim on it, just like the throne of God, that's where God was in the temple with the people. Remember that when Uzzah one of the Israelites accidentally touched the ark while carrying it, he died. Remember in 2 Samuel when Israel faced their greatest foe in the promised land, the Philistines, what did they do? What they wanted to do was get the ark out of the temple, out of the tabernacle at the time, bring it out to war. Because if we can just take the ark out to war and take the lid off facing the Philistines, it'll all be over. That's our war tool. That's our nuclear weapon, God. Now, they were doing this so presumptively and so foolishly and so against God's will. The Philistines captured the ark. They took it home to their own land. They put it right in their own temple to the god called Dagon. Of course, the ark got spit out back to Israel after they woke up the next morning and their god Dagon was in his temple with his hands and his head cut off, proving God is God. The ark came back to Israel so when we see the ark, we're not, just, we're not just seeing like a unique little object of worship furniture in the temple. We're seeing the seat of the majesty and the power of God over all the universe. To see the ark of the covenant is to see the throne of God. This is the scene that the two witnesses are described in chapter 11 in an important location in the temple. That's where the two witnesses are. They're in the temple. There's the outer court. And what happens there in the outer court in the temple description? The nations are allowed to trample out there. The nations are at every hour on the doorstep of the Holy of Holies in the temple. 
But what's between the outer court and the holy of holies, what's between the outer court and the ark of the covenant in the description of the temple in Revelation 11, it's the two witnesses. Those two lampstands, just like the temple was always set up, there's a lampstand there, and it says in, this, in chapter 11, those two lampstands stand before the Lord of the earth. It's like the whole earth is the outer courts of God's heavenly throne. The nations are all trampling on it. But between the nations and the intercourt, the holy of holies, there's what? There's the witnesses, the two lampstands. And what happens in Revelation chapter 11? The, elep, the lampstands are destroyed. The witnesses, the lampstands are destroyed. They, they in the outer courts, but they go in another layer. They destroy the lampstands. That outer court was breached. And they've gone from their measured permitted trampling to the beast destroying the lampstands, the witnesses themselves who are supposed to be before God day and night worshiping. And the nations in the court, what did they do? They celebrated. They were glad these guys are gone. We got rid of the lampstands now. But oh, what waits for them beyond the lampstands Inside the temple. What waits when they in the outer courts kill the lampstands, when the beast overcomes the lampstands? What's at the center of the temple? When you trample on the lampstand, when you kill the witnesses of God, prepare to meet God himself. God is seated on the ark. God is in the center of the Holy of Holies, seated on his throne. That's what it means by starting to measure the temple in chapter 11, the destruction of the witnessing lampstands. And then at the end, I saw the ark. The temple was opened and I saw the ark. The nation's done messed up now. Notice the flow of everything in the seven trumpets from 8, chapter 6 to eleven nineteen. It's like Egypt and Pharaoh all over again, like Elijah and Baal all over again, the innumerable locusts like Egypt all over again, the innumerable army, and then the beast himself comes to kill the witnesses. But what is at the center of everything swirling around the throne of God? The ark, God himself. When you meet God, Witnesses, when you meet God, what kind of firepower comes with him? The power that emanates from the throne that we saw back in Revelation chapter 4 to describe how God's throne looked and sounded shows back up here. I saw the ark and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, Peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. God's throne. Christians, God is not going to equip us with knives or swords or even a government on the earth. Christians in America, we cannot count on America to save us from the beast.
Quite the contrary. Cannot trust in horses or chariots or planes or bombs. Can't trust in rights and freedoms. The witnesses are too much for the world. The nations will trample the outer courts. The beast will rise and kill the witnesses. There is nothing on earth that can save. But remember, remember that God's power does not come to save the witnesses from the beast. The beast rises to kill them. But look back at Revelation, verse 9 through 12. Revelation 11, 9 through 12. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been in torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. A lot of people will place what's been called the rapture in this location in Revelation. I personally don't think there is such a thing. But what is there is that even when the beast rises to kill the witnesses of God, the lampstands of God before the earth, those who die where the Lord was crucified in Egypt and Sodom, God will come and breathe back into them life. This is less about some CNN or Fox or social media event happening around the world, some technological advancement that allows everyone to see these two witnesses on the ground in some foreign country or some city in the world. Maybe it's that. But it's more about those nations who trampled the outer court, the nations destroying the witness and the lampstands, the beast himself rising to kill when the witness is finished. The nations will rejoice at the death of God's witnesses. And then they will fear when the witnesses are given life again. They'll watch. This is what John notices. They'll watch. They'll watch as they go up to heaven in a cloud. Witness until the witness is finished. Nothing can stop the witness of God. Witness as long as God has given us authority. As long as Jesus has given his witnesses authority. Witness. Speak Jesus' name. Follow Jesus with your life and your morality. Know that though maybe a, a day when the ark still behind the lampstands and they kill the witnesses that those who trample in the outer courts, the nations, the beast who rises to kill the witnesses, they're going to meet the ark. 
They're going to find God. They want to go from the outer courts, trample the lampstands. They're going to keep going in and they're going to find God who will judge them. Trust the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Why keep witnessing? Why keep preaching about a crucified Savior for sinner? Why keep believing against the hostility of the world in a crucified Savior, a, a son of God who died at Egypt and Sodom, who died in, in this earth? Because he rose from the grave. Because he, by God's power, can breathe life into the witnesses. Share the gospel of Christ. You might say no to a job. Witness can never be stopped, only finished. The witness can never be stopped, only finished. Keep witnessing. God of the Ark of the Covenant will have the last word when the witnessing lampstands are destroyed and he breathes life into them and he calls them home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified in a world of sinners, gone out into the outer courts, as it were, to be crucified among God's people, among the people of sinners of the earth. So we just thank you for the gospel that Christ died for sin for us. And we confess our sin, we confess our need for Jesus. We confess the hope that he's risen from the grave and that Jesus will never taste death again. We recognize, Father, that you are in control of history. The nations will rage, but your wrath will come. We trust, Father, that on the throne, that the ark, that there is power beyond any power in the world. That though we may be slain, though we may be killed, though we may lose work, though we may lose friends or family, we will have life forever. Help us to live in this boldness, walk in this freedom. Help us to not trust in the trappings of men, security of men, but to instead entrust ourselves to God who can breathe life back into his witnesses. As you just take a moment and pray personally how the Lord may be working in your heart, convicting, encouraging today. Pray, repent, confess, commit yourself to Him in the coming days.